The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media, technology, foreign affairs. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're looking at people not just behaving as human beings do, but in their collectivities behaving in the most primal manner possible. Right? This is primal. This is people's behaving as toddlers do, you know, and lashing out at each other and having fits and, and uh, operating emotionally, telling themselves ridiculous lies to make themselves feel better on both sides. If a toddler really wants something and can take it, you know what happens? They take it. And uh, if there's no one who can stop them, that's what they're going to do. How do you even begin to understand the crisscrossing alliances of frenemies, on and off rivals, and strange bedfellows that is the Middle East after October 7th? Well, this episode will try to help. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Hussein Ibish. He is Senior Resident Scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, his 2009 book was What's Wrong with the One-State Agenda? Why Ending the Occupation and Peace with Israel is Still the Palestinian National Goal. You have seen his byline everywhere in Bloomberg, in the Daily Star, in Beirut. I've seen him in uh, the UAE's National. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, thanks. Uh, it's uh, mostly these days with the Atlantic, but the National I'm a weekly columnist for. You are but internationally known, sir. Uh, and not spread too thin. a lot. Yeah. A man in demand. I have to ask you, I, you know, as, as an Iranian-born person, and, and, yeah. and everybody was asking me kind of in the days following October 7th, and then emanating out of that with the proxy war situation we're seeing with a very militarized border between Israel and Lebanon and the Houthi situation yeah. uh, with that very valuable trade route that you've written about, and backing Hamas, which isn't a necessarily a natural ally to Shiite Iran, right. what does Iran want out of the Middle East? Oh, that's a great question. All right, well, using proxy militia groups is Iran's primary way of um, projecting its power in the region, especially in the Arab world. It's proven really effective for Iran. They began shortly after the Islamic Revolution in Iran um, when Israel's invasion of southern Lebanon, which was aimed at driving the PLO out, gave them an opportunity to organize militant Shiites in the south of Lebanon into Hezbollah, which is sort of the prototype of these militia groups. And in some cases, it's been, um, you know, a very opportunistically created by the Quds force of the IRGC, of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, like in Lebanon and then in Iraq in the context of the, the U.S. occupation there or in Syria in the context of the civil war. And in other cases, these groups arose independently, like the Houthis, who are not 12er Shiites, as the Iranians are and most of the Arab Shiites are. But in Yemen, they're 5 Shiites, meaning they're five imams. I'm not going to bore people with theology, uh -huh. but it's slightly different. 
So uh, the Houthis existed really sort of before Iran, but Iran opportunistically came in and became the patron of the Houthis. And the Houthis found it very comfortable to be in this alliance that Iran and the others call the Axis of Resistance. The key figure for a long time was Qasem Soleimani, but now that he's dead, even though institutionally, and he was assassinated by the United States towards the end of the Trump administration, along with the key Iranian ally in Iraq, uh, Al-Muhandis. They were both whacked with a Reaper drone at, at Baghdad airport. After that, though, I think it's fair to say Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon, has emerged as the most charismatic, well-known, linking figure, the figure that the other groups all over, the groups in Syria, in Iraq, in, of course in Lebanon, in Yemen, and elsewhere, look to for leadership and guidance and whatnot. Now, the, you know, actual vertical control goes back to the Quds Force, but uh, Nasrallah is, is a unique figure. Hamas is a, an uncomfortable fit, as you say, uh, because all of these other groups are uh, either Shiites or at least in the case of the Alawite government of Syria, which is sort of a part of this, at least not Sunni Muslims, not right. part of that dominant, overwhelming uh, Arab majority that has been oppressive and, uh, and historically um, discriminatory against non-Sunni Muslims, Shiites, Alawites, Druze, etc. So there is this historic grievance, and it's this, uh, there is this concept of the alliance of minorities, but you don't hear that much. It's more framed in revolutionary terms, the axis of resistance. But Hamas, Hamas was, it had to leave this uh, coalition during the uh, 10 years of sectarian schism in the region kicked off by the Arab Spring uprisings and especially the civil war in Syria, where the Muslim Brotherhood of Syria was a key part of the uprising in its early phase. And Hamas, being the Palestinian militant iteration of the, of the Brotherhood, had to choose sides between its, its allies and its identity. And it chose its identity, of course. Um, so, so I have to I have to wonder what happened in the immediate shell shock of October seventh, yeah. where you would think that this would be a pungent excuse for a Bibi Netanyahu to convince DC this is the time to attack the mullahs of Iran. Right. But something happens, and I'm I don't quite understand this. Some back channel impression that I got was that they said, "Look, we nominally support these guys, we fund them, but we had really no idea that this was about to happen." Yes. What do you so, believe okay. happened behind the scenes? All right, this is a great question. I'm going to tackle it on both sides. So we know because of, it was reported at the time in the Lebanese press, and then subsequent to October 7, it was reported in the Western and Israeli press. We know that there were a series of meetings in a war room maintained in Beirut that between the Quds Force, Hamas, and Hezbollah, in which the Hamas figures, including Saleh al-Aruri, the the guy that Israel assassinated in Beirut uh, in late December, spoke vaguely about some sort of military attack on Israel. And Hezbollah gave them what Hezbollah regarded as very vague assurances of generalized support. Hamas thought they were getting, apparently thought they may have been getting, some sort of a commitment to join the fray, but that was not the case. Hamas, in preparing for October 7th, used military-grade secrecy and information security. So I think it's pretty clear that uh, even the Hamas leaders in Qatar, 
um, who are the nominal leaders of, of Hamas, uh, probably didn't know the date of this, though I think they knew about the operation. And it seems to me uh, sort of obvious that um, the Iranian leadership didn't know either about the specific plan or the date, and that that's true of Hezbollah as well, and the Houthis, and that the only people who knew were those with a need to know within the Qassam brigades, and then also within the Hamas leadership in Gaza, like Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in Gaza. So is and, it possible to say that Hamas core Gaza went rogue? I mean, if, they're, if no, they got a wink-wink no. wink reassurance from Hezbollah, that I imagine in, in that body language, that would be like, if we yeah. do this, if we do yeah. this, we're going to get the follow-on from your more higher-grade missiles to the north, that Iran is going to back us from that side. The Houthi situation will flare up. There's always Syria. I mean, I'm trying to imagine. It's well, amazing to me when they talk about the dedicated copper wires in the tunnels yeah. underneath. And nobody pierced this. Nobody had any right. idea. And it seems like very quickly did the United States and the State Department and, and Pentagon say, we don't believe Iran was directly involved in Right, this. right. Well, I think that's true, though. Um, I, I believe that. And, and I think it's sort of evident by looking at, at facts. Iran is implicated because Iran has been Hamas's main military sponsor for a decade now and for the decade before last. So there was a decade kind of break where Hamas and uh, Iran were not on great terms, so they maintained some military links. But basically, Qatar emerged as the main sponsor and home away from home for Hamas leaders during the Arab Spring decade between uh, 2011 and, say, uh, 2019. But you're right, Iran is sort of uh, implicated in the broader sense. In the exact planning and execution of October 7, I think Iran didn't know about it. Now, what ended up happening is, yeah, there, I think Hamas was hoping for a regional war. They weren't counting on it because they didn't know if Hezbollah would follow through and the others would follow through. And the, the rise of the Houthis as a factor, I think, is a surprise to, uh, not to Iran by any means, but probably to Hamas. I don't think Hamas was thinking much about the Houthis. And the Houthi actions in the Red Sea don't help Hamas particularly. I mean, just, it's really an Iranian thing, and I'll get to that in a second. But what I mean is that when the war started on, you know, October 7th, Hezbollah was the main question. Like, what would they do? They have a, an arsenal of 150,000 missiles and rockets, many of them with precision guidance. They can hit any target in Israel. They, they, if they had joined the battle on October 7 with their full arsenal, um, Israeli intelligence thinks there could have been 100,000 Israeli deaths in a oh, few no. days. Yeah, it's a, it's a mighty arsenal. And that's actually one of the reasons why Israel is sort of threatening uh, to go to war, to, is to reduce the power of that arsenal. Now, the Israelis, I think, thought maybe that this was a golden opportunity to get the United States involved, at least to take down uh, Hezbollah's capability, and maybe to kick off a cascade of events that led to a U.S.-Iranian confrontation and finally get the U.S., after 20 years of trying and failing, to attack Iran's nuclear facilities. But it, it's very clear that uh, even though Israel's defense minister, Yoav Galant, was demanding an, a, a preemptive attack on Hezbollah around October 11, 12, Joe Biden said, no way, absolutely not. If you do this, you're on your own. 
And I think that's been the American position until So was now. it sublimation that he sent super tankers to the region? I mean, this is, this no, no, is where no. I want to... No, here was Biden's, Biden's strategy with this war from the outset was to focus mainly on preventing the war from spreading because what he didn't want was for the United States to get dragged into it. So as long he, his calculation was as long as it stays contained to Gaza, the damage strategically to U.S. interests can be contained. The U.S. can avoid getting involved. Uh, Hezbollah doesn't want to get involved, that's clear. And Iran doesn't want Hezbollah to get involved, to answer your other question, because Hezbollah's main purpose is as a deterrent to protect Iran from Israeli or American strikes against Iran itself. The Iran is not going to waste its trump card, which is Hezbollah, on a, a place and an organization, uh, Gaza and Hamas, that are so marginal to its strategic interests and even culturally and religiously to its agenda. It, 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 Gaza pulls at Palestinian heartstrings, but not much beyond that. If the fighting had spread to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem or the West Bank, everything would have been different. But it didn't. Nasrallah's reaction to the war was to go into hiding for three and a half weeks. He loves his own voice. He just relishes talking on TV. He and Netanyahu, now that uh, Hugo Chavez is dead, because he was the king of loving your own voice, but now that Chavez is dead, Netanyahu and Nasrallah like are co competitors for who loves their own voice more in the world. And it, Nasrallah was like nowhere to be seen for three and a half weeks because he didn't know what to say. And he didn't know what to say because the Iranians were kind of telling him, look, you're on your own, make up your own mind, do what you want, which is basically... Hussein, it feels like a heist movie gone bad. It is a where, heist movie gone bad. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to make light of, a, of, a, of an atrocious situation with a significant loss of life and consternation across the world. But if a lot of this was hatched on kind of a wink-wink understanding that you got our back, right? So yes. did they imagine that if they went whole hog and did this invasion and mowed down as many Israelis as they did and kept the barrage going in and the Iron Dome might have neutralized that, but they took hostages yep, and they significantly upped the situation um, oh, yeah. that Hezbollah would follow through with the, with the okay of Tehran to rain all of these higher-tech missiles on Israel. And that I think would they effectively... were hoping that. They were, I think Hamas was hoping for that, but they knew that there's nothing they could do, and it's still the case that there's nothing they can do to make sure the war spreads anywhere outside of Gaza, even in the West Bank. They're just not capable of doing it. So what they could do is attack Israel with as much force as possible and as much savagery as possible in order to change the equation, hoping to kick off a regional war. That hasn't happened yet, but it still easily could, right? The, the danger has not passed for the world, and the hope of Hamas is not gone. So it still could happen. I think what Hamas's second idea was uh, is that this war with Israel getting Israel to invade Gaza. And that's what they intended. I think mean, they knew that this was going to happen. They knew what they were baiting the Israelis to do because they understand Israel. What they want is an Israeli reoccupation of the urban centers of Gaza so that they can event, the remnants of Hamas can launch an insurgency, a long-term insurgency against Israeli forces. The People have to understand what Hamas is about. The prime directive of Hamas, since it was founded by the Brotherhood, Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza in 1987, is to take over the Palestinian national movement. 
people form political movements to get power. And you have to get power internally first. You can't go after external enemies with any great efficacy until you've secured your power at home. So the prime directive of Hamas, still unattained, from its founding has been take over the Palestinian national movement from the secular nationalists in Fatah and make the Palestinian cause an Islamist cause led by them and their friends. And the crown jewel in the Palestinian national movement that the big achievement that it has gotten since it was reformed in the late 60s under Arafat is the global diplomatic presence and status of the PLO internationally, right? It's the UN uh, non-member observer state status of the General Assembly and 130 missions and embassies around the world. That's the big thing the Palestinians have gotten that Israel can't take away from them. And whoever has that speaks for the Palestinians on the world stage and at the Arab League and everywhere. And until now, it's, it's been Fatah and not Hamas. This is a long-term plan by Hamas to fight the Israelis tooth and nail. And they know that recent history shows you can make a very effective insurgency under the most onerous circumstances and with very little resources. Like anyone can make an IED and get a pistol. If you're willing to die, you can take out a couple soldiers every day or every week, and then you wave the bloody shirt and say, we are the national movement. Compare us who are fighting occupation forces over control of Palestinian land in Gaza every day with the PA, which is like the gendarmerie of the occupation in the West Bank. It's like a, a subcontracting police force for the Israelis, they will say. And the PLO, sitting at a negotiating table, listening to the crickets, uh, Khalid Mishal, Ismail Haniyeh, Musa Abu Marzouk, Fatih Hamad, etc., who are all in Doha, living a good life, but, you know, they, they used to be in control of the movement, but they were expelled from Gaza through an agreement with Israel, and they ended up going to Syria. But when the Syrian uh, revolution started, as I was saying before, the Brotherhood was a big part of it, and they had to flee Syria. They had to literally run away. And they found refuge in Qatar. And so now Qatar is the home of these guys, and that's where you go to talk to Hamas. They've become the diplomatic wing of Hamas. They've become like the guys on TV. And it's a useful thing for Hamas, but they don't have power in the organization. It does raise an interesting question about the positive role Qatar could play beyond the hostage negotiations if you could get Qatar to emerge as a de facto international fiduciary for Gaza, leading the reconstruction and getting these guys back in power in Hamas, the more moderate people they are, and they are more moderate than the military wing, um, a little bit anyway. And uh, if the leaders on the ground in Gaza, uh, Yahya Sinwar and Muhammad Daif and the others, are killed or captured, and uh, Qatar comes in to lead reconstruction, you could get these guys being the ones to say, okay, we, we will agree that some other Palestinian um, uh, who is not us and not Fatah, someone like, say, Fatah. Who is that? Like, this is what I want to know. Is, is it a fantasy on the West or Condi Rice? Mm -hmm. Back, I remember her comments when, yeah. you know, there were free elections and, and, and Fatah yep. and, and following up with Hamas and Gaza. What is the, what is the, what, what are people romancing exactly? Uh, yeah, that who is the I guy, mean, Mohammed you know, Dalan? Right. 
Mohammed Dalan or some guy who went into an Israeli prison and learned Hebrew is going to suddenly reappear and win the hearts and minds well, of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip? It's not going to be Dahlan, but it could be Marwan Barghouti. If the Israelis... See, the big problem here in my... And I know this sounds like blaming one side only, but Israel really does have the cards here. The Israelis, if they were serious about, first of all, damaging Hamas politically as well as physically. I mean, they're damaging them physically. But if you wanted to damage them politically, you have to bolster their enemies, which is the Fatah guys. And they're doing nothing to do that. They still won't even give them the Palestinian tax money that Israel collects and is supposed to hand over. They won't give it to them for whatever The very reason. opposite, clarify this, the very opposite of bolstering Fatah and its octogenarian mm-hmm. leader, I guess lame duck or whatever he is, is looking the other way while these settlements increasingly are There's that, there's over. arming the settlers, there's going into Janine and Nablus to fight the kids with guns, there's making him look ridiculous by saying we will never accept a Palestinian state when the whole purpose of the PLO and Fatah since the late 80s has been to negotiate an agreement with Israel. The Israelis so rationally, the rationally, you want a nation state as a counterparty. You would you think want- so. So, but at the same time, and this is where the cynicism, and you, I've seen it in your columns and your pieces yeah. of Netanyahu believing that while he's holding on to power and it's mm-hmm. kind of laughable, all the elections that are having at home, if yeah. he can undermine and bribe through various parties and yeah. keep the whole situation at stasis and uncomfortable equilibrium, that he could just run out the clock on a two-state solution. There was this idea romanced for quite a bit that we could play a third different way, and this is a war of money and attrition and neglect, and benign neglect and malign neglect, and we'll never have to confront it. So I think Netanyahu has finally stopped lying in the past 48 hours or or three days. For the first time, he has openly said what he and the Israeli right have believed and practiced assiduously for the past 30 years since the assassination of Rabin uh, by a Netanyahu-supporting Israeli Jewish extremist, that the whole point of Israel's policies towards the Palestinian is focused on preventing any kind of meaningful Palestinian statehood. And he said that categorically a couple of times. Biden said, oh, maybe we can figure something out. And the journalist said, what do you mean? And he said, well, maybe he'd be open to a non-militarized Palestinian state, which, which would make sense for Palestinians, actually. And, and the PLO kind of wanted to do that, but not as an Israeli. But I'm, I'm even Hold struck. Then Netanyahu yeah. comes out and says, his office says, no, we're not. We're not open to any statehood. Now, what it means is that the, the six million Palestinians under occupation, no citizenship in Israel and no citizenship in any state of their own. And Israel is not going to apparently allow them a state. So what are they going to do with them? I think we know from the Gaza war where this train is going and going fast. Because when you listen to what Netanyahu's office and others have been saying about what to do with the Palestinians in Gaza, it's come down to get rid of them, ship them out. They're talking about sending them to Congo, the most war-torn, impoverished place in the world, because they could bribe the Congolese to take a million from Gaza and bribe some other, you know, incredibly poor country. It's insane. But my point is this. The place they really want to expel Palestinians from is not Gaza. It's the West Bank. And we are on a fast 
train to ex annexation and expulsion. This is where the whole train has been going since the Camp David summit failed in 2000, since we discovered that Israel, even under Ehud Barak, really wasn't interested in a real Palestinian state that was that was unif that that was um, had contiguity and and uh, had um, real sovereignty and stuff like that. And there was a shock in at Camp David to learn that when they used the same words, they meant different things like state, you know, and things like that. So what I'm getting at here is the Israelis are going to have to choose now between three options. Dealing with the Palestinians who want to talk to them and make a deal for once. And, it's, well, Rabin did, but going back to that. Or, which it doesn't look like not only Netanyahu, but any plausible Israeli government is willing to do. Or expelling the Palestinians and being in large numbers and being done with them and creating new borders with buffer zones, and hoping that would solve the problem, which it won't, but, you know, that would be the next step. Or trying to maintain the status quo into the indefinite future, which would mean more October 7th, without a doubt. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, the link... All of the services are there is Full D Radio. Again, Full D Radio. You could find us on the socials at handle Full D Radio. We have a live show coming up with NPR Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep and many more uh, throughout the academic calendar year at the University of Richmond. You could follow on all social media at handle Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, my guest is Hussein Ibish. He is senior resident scholar at the Arab States Institute in Washington. You see his byline frequently in The Atlantic, in Bloomberg, in The National, in the United Arab Emirates. His 2009 book was What's Wrong with a One-State Agenda? Why Ending the Occupation and Peace with Israel is Still the Palestinian National Goal. Uh, to bring it back to the hub and spoke of Iran, I was struck, again, at the, the terrorist attack at the funeral there. Was this an ISIS-like, Daesh-like entity asserting that, lest you forget about us, we yes. are the chief torchbearers for... What was the message being sent That there? was station ID. You got it. You nailed it. It was station ID from ISIS trying to say that they are still a factor and they are still capable of doing dramatically vicious and cruel things on a purely sectarian basis, killing Shiites because of their hatred of Shiites attacking Iran because of their hatred of the Iranian government, which is not based on sort of rational policy disagreements. It's based on sectarian hatred. These are psychos. And uh, I think the bombing in Iran was a part of the sort of psychotic brand of ISIS, yes. They were bombing the funeral of the now lionized Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, who was right. killed in a Trump administration strike, right? That's that's right. Th it's yeah, it's it, an odd signaling to want to send. And Qasemani was well, known as a no. as a person who cleared out ISIS type elements. Yeah, I really need yes. a program to, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, to follow yeah. this. <laughs> no, for sure, because in in Syria, Soleimani's forces in the Fatemiyun brigades and uh, the Ismailiyun brigade and others that were brought from Pakistan and Afghanistan and others of Shiites. Shiite militias under uh, Qasem Soleimani and certainly Hezbollah, which was under his direction as well, they were not key to the anti-ISIS mission, but they are the most potent Shiite forces in the region. And therefore, there's this tremendous hatred by these sectarian fanatics in Daesh, in ISIS, who are 
who genuinely believe in these crazy conspiracy theories about um, Shia Islam being a Jewish plot and things like that. But they can't even they can't they can't put that on hiatus in the interest of letting, you know, Iran have its way as the axis of resistance with this Hamas. No, 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 because they have to be the axis of resistance, right? There is a competition here over who is more radical and uh, who, who really carries the flag of revolution for the Muslims. Is it going to be the ultra-pure Daesh fundamentalists who are looking for an Armageddon-like uh, second coming of the Mahdi and... Uh, various battles of, of, of last day, or is it going to be this uh, Iranian state with its network of uh, militias in the region? And uh, I think Daesh was not willing to let Iran have a heyday now uh, because they managed to convince a bunch of fanatical Arabs to fight Iran's war for them, which is sort of what's going on. Hossein, will you explain the calculus in Cairo with uh, the strong man in charge of Egypt there. I There's a rumor, there's a legend that plausibly Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, is more on the phone with the ruler of Egypt than he is with uh, Joe Biden, that yeah, they have common true. cause clearly in cordoning off Gaza, but that the bro- Muslim Brotherhood that was an enemy of the current regime in Egypt is a version of what you see with Hamas. That's right. They, yes. They, I mean, they're all Muslim brothers. So, yes, um, there is a lot of coordination between Israel and Egypt, but also between Egypt and Hamas. So Egypt is another place where you can talk to Hamas because Egypt, in an unfriendly way, Qatar has been a patron of Hamas, but Egypt is a neighbor of Hamas because of the border between Gaza and Sinai. So in, a, in an antagonistic way, Egypt also maintains a constant dialogue with Hamas. And it's probably easier, actually, to get through to Hamas guys on the ground in Gaza through Egypt than it is through Qatar. Because in Qatar, it's a question of will they answer the phone calls from the people they unseated, the old political leaders. In the question of Egypt and Cairo, it's no problem sending a message into uh, Gaza. All you have to do is send someone in, and it's right there. And so, you know, there is this dialogue. The other thing is that, yeah, the Egyptians have regarded the displacement of the Palestinians in Gaza into Egypt, into the Sinai, as a major security priority to be avoided since the early 1950s. It goes that far back. And they have regarded not being drawn back in to an authority role in Gaza as a priority since the uh, peace treaty with Israel in 1979. So they don't want to have anything. They're, they're, again, to reiterate, they do not want to have anything with governance in Gaza. That that's nothing. Oh, absolutely not. off. Keep they that away not, from us. They will never accept a governance role in Gaza, and they will not cooperate in being a hinge for others to pass through Egypt into Gaza to do it. Because that even that's too much. They will not do it. It is an it is a policy that predates Gamal Abdel Nasser. Okay, it is, it is a very old Egyptian policy, and they're not going to change it for anybody, and there's no amount of money that will make them change it. So people have to understand that when uh, Israelis or Americans start musing about Egypt being the fulcrum of an Arab force that's going to come in and take over and police Gaza, nobody is going to save Israel or, and or Hamas from themselves. No one is going to come in and clean up the mess. And if anyone did come in and take over from the Israelis and start policing the streets of Gaza, 
the insurgency that Hamas hopes to uh, launch against Israel would be launched against that group because they would be plausibly seen as subcontractors for the occupation. So then what is this grand bargain that we're hearing about behind the scenes that a bunch of nation states are coming together and saying could be theoretically, notionally, if a Netanyahu is gone, if then, if then, if then, kind of a Rube Goldberg apparatus. Because again, I read about the history of Gaza and what was there, the flourishing society and the pottery and the food and the arts and the music and the waterfront and all that could be accomplished. Well, actually, let me tell you something about Gaza. The alphabet of the Phoenicians derives from an earlier alphabet in Gaza. Gaza is actually the birthplace of the alphabet. And that is not known by many people, but that is true. So it has an incredibly deep history, uh, an ancient and a modern one. There's a great book by this French guy called Filieu uh, about the history of Gaza. It's mostly about the old history of Gaza, the ancient history, but it takes, goes up to the present. It's a brilliant book. Uh, everyone who's interested should read it. Um, but uh, yeah, okay, so the I, I, I mean, look, if you could get an Israeli government willing to say, yes, we understand, we need an agreement with the Palestinians, we need to work with the Palestinians who want to talk to us rather than the Palestinians who want to shoot at us, and we are going to be serious about that, and we are going to finally accept in principle the Palestinian right to a state, not recognize the Palestinian state, but recognize the right to a state, and begin negotiating with the PLO to, to kind of figure out what that would mean in practice and all that, then all kinds of things would be possible, including Saudi normalization with Israel, which would open the door for most, uh, not just Arab states, but Sunni Muslim majority states in the world to follow suit. And it, it would open the door to uh, getting the PA to slowly take over the governance role in Gaza with credibility, right? Because then they would have secured this, they would get money, they would get uh, a lot of goodies, uh, you know, and, and they would get finally get treated with respect and seriousness by the Israeli government. What would protect an insurgency, another insurgency against the PA in Gaza? So there, there would probably be one, but uh, I think there would be tremendous public support for the PA, if the PA could get um, money for reconstruction and uh, real negotiations towards independence for Palestinians and get a commitment out of Israel for the first time that Palestinians have a right to a state. And they would say, look, Hamas's armed struggle brought you death and destruction on an unparalleled basis. 70% of the people in the world facing starvation now are in Gaza. Can you imagine? I mean, it's, it's incredible what's happened. Israel's war of vengeance is terrible indeed. Whether it rises to the level of genocide or not, the International uh, Court of Justice will decide. But it is a terrible war of vengeance. And that's Netanyahu's words, not my word. He keeps talking about avenging October 7. Fine. There, Palestinians would then have a choice between... A, a policy that leads to hell or a policy that very slowly accrues benefits in a frustrating... And but that's also assuming way. that you have, you have a fair counterparty in Israel. That is and the problem. Yes, I agree with how that. Do you, yes. How do you see that playing out after... I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're, as I said, I think we're on a fast train to um, annexation ex and expulsions as Israel moves to create new borders with buffer zones on all sides 
and as few Palestinians annexed into the Israeli state as possible. And they would, uh, I think they would do this under the cover of unrest and violence and saying that this is the only way to secure security of Israel and settlers who would now be part of Israel and all of that. And you can see it here in the Gaza war. I I'll give you two examples. One is all these efforts to come up with plans to send the Gaza Palestinians somewhere else, like the Congo. And also, look at the ultimatums that Israel is giving uh, Hezbollah. Israel is demanding that the Radwan force and other elite forces that operate in the border area be withdrawn in compliance with UN Security Council Resolution 1701, which was adopted after the last major uh, uh, Hezbollah-Israel war in, 20, in 2006, though it's a bit rich to hear Israel demanding the implementation of Security Council resolutions, because no country in the world has anything like Israel's record of blowing them off. But the point is, they are saying these people have to move, these, these um, Hezbollah fighters have to move out of the homeland and founding area and main sort of area there's Dahriya and Baalbek, but really it's the south that's the sort of homeland of Hezbollah, and they, they're saying they have to go. And so there is this notion then of buffer zones. Israel is already creating a buffer zone deep in Gaza, um, a couple of miles in this tiny Gaza that is going to be annexed to a, a buffer zone for Israel. And you could have the same thing created in the West Bank using exactly the logic of Gaza and of Lebanon, and the removal of Palestinians is being seriously discussed. So I'm, I'm not looking at a future where the Israelis realize that uh, their policies were a major factor in producing October 7, and if they keep it up, they'll get more October 7s and worse. But actually, I see Israel as moving quickly to grab whatever it wants and give everyone the finger and do it because they can. I have to say, look, when you look at this conflict, we're looking at people not just behaving as human beings do, but in their collectivities, behaving in the most primal manner possible, right? This is primal. This is people's behaving as toddlers do, you know, and lashing out at each other and having fits and, and uh, operating emotionally, telling themselves ridiculous lies to make themselves feel better on both sides. And what I think we're looking at then here is a logic of if, if a toddler really wants something and can take it, you know what happens? They take it. And uh, if there's no one who can stop them, that's what they're going to do. And I really think that Israel is getting to the point where no one can stop them in this post-Ukraine world of might makes right post-international order world, I think the Israeli polity is moving very quickly into a space where that's what they're going to try to do. Hossein Ibish, senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. I've only been asking you to come on for several years to, to finally have you on. was wonderful. Consider yourself a, a friend of the show. Please come Robin, back Robin, can on. I come back? Because this of has course. been an amazing conversation. Of course. You have a hell of a podcast. I love it. Thank you. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers indeed, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, the handle is fulldradio on all the socials. Please do follow. If you were just joining us, we were talking to Hussein Ibish on the uh, 
Gosh, trying to keep a program of the various players and the balances of power in the Middle East on the same tangent. I wanted to talk with Laura Rosen. She is a veteran foreign policy journalist. She was the diplomatic correspondent for Al Monitor, a foreign policy reporter for Politico and for Foreign Policy magazine. Uh, she now writes and reports the diplomatic newsletter on Substack. How are you? Thank you for having me. How are you? Psyched to finally have you on. Laura, how do I, I – I'm thinking back to that one time that Netanyahu – embarrassed was it vice president biden when he went back to kind of maybe uh he visited israel on some mission in the obama administration and on the flight back they unleashed a bunch of settlements in the west bank and nobody could have kind of guessed ahead you know 12 years later that their fortunes would be so inextricably linked after October 7th. Netanyahu holding on for dear power, Biden being that critical ally that's both arming them and giving them cover at the UN. I see that you've written about this as well. Right. And and, uh, and your memory is even better, is better than mine, because I remember um, Netanyahu really going at it with Obama and Obama really pushing back more, right? But Biden has taken a much different approach. You've seen this conflict especially, but even a couple years ago when there was another flare-up in Gaza, that um, Biden takes his criticism of Israel behind closed doors. They don't like to do it in public. Um, they're bending over backwards to, um, you know, to be publicly um, helpful. Um, it's sometimes embarrassing, I have to say, listening to the U.S. spokespeople when they get asked about alleged atrocities that are happening um, and they, they kind of dodge and weave and, you know, we're not looking at it or is anyone investigating? And um, so anyhow, the, the Biden administration is taking a very different approach. In spite of that, Netanyahu decided last week to kind of start campaigning against them. And they're pushing at Davos and elsewhere for uh, a post-war Gaza scenario where Saudi and Israel would um, normalize relations if Israel agrees to a two-state solution. And BB started campaigning in Israel against... So here's the, here's the interesting thing to me, Laura, when I read about it, and in your essay, you, you explain uh, with Natan Sachs, director of the Brookings Institution Center for Middle East Policy, how Netanyahu is opening a public front against Biden. Uh, Biden, it says, unlike Barack Obama, has gained enormous credit from the Israeli public. He has tremendous capital in the wake of October 7th. Um, and it's is it it's not a leap of faith to say he's far more popular among the Israeli electorate than Netanyahu is. Right. And what Natan Sachs was was saying that I'm not sure I gave it enough justice in the piece that you mentioned is that the entire Israeli electorate, with a few exceptions, is terrified right now. And they they're terrified of relying on the Palestinians for security. And so, the, you know, Netanyahu has managed to find an issue much like he did with Iran. Right. Where um, where what he rejects, a lot of the Israeli public is sort of in a defensive crouch and they sort of are going along with that. So you don't see a lot of other Israeli uh, politicians jumping in saying we'd love to have, you know, a Palestinian state and let's be on board with Biden. Netanyahu is kind of a genius at that. So what Natan was saying is there are, there are kind of smaller things you could do um, that other politicians would be amenable to and the Israeli public could get on board with. But I, I think Biden's, I don't know, I don't know if, if they're waiting to see if the, is anyhow, I think they're, they're, they're waiting for the Israeli domestic politics um, to advance a little bit. They're not, they don't want to do regime change. How does that, how does that shake out? When is that I, elusive day after, morning after? Because we know. remember, you, you know, Golda Meir lost her job, if you're thinking about 
a half a century ago. I mean, after after the war kind of subsides or the invasion. Ago and that and you know Biden talks all the time about meeting meeting Golda Meir after that and when he was a young senator and, and that seemed to be very much on his mind after October seventh and um, I don't know you know and and having lived through the Trump administration when there was a lot of U.S. concern about foreign interference in our elections I think that there's a little bit of a reluctance perhaps on the even on Biden's part um, looking like they're interfering in another country's elections. Does that make sense? It does. And I actually have, it's interesting that you bring that up because I have a mental exercise for you. Imagine that uh, Trump legitimately won the election in 2020. He remained power. He's in his second administration. He did not have a falling out with Netanyahu over Netanyahu calling to congratulate Joe Biden um, four years ago. And this October 7th, disaster happened under Trump's watch. What would Trump have done? Or what would Trump, in your mind, have suggested Israel do in response? I think it would look probably a lot like what Israel's doing. And I have to say, you know, going to a lot of these State Department gaggles, the the conversations they do sometimes before they go out to the podium, um, I think the U.S. assesses that Israel was going to do what they were going to do, and the U.S. could either publicly be on board with it and privately try to gain influence to to modify the behavior. Um, I, I think they didn't think they had as much influence as people think, right? And then, so that's one thing. And two is they are afraid to start publicly really criticizing the Netanyahu administration um, beyond politics here or there because they're afraid that Hezbollah and other enemies of Israel will take that as a signal that the floodgates are open. And they definitely, even though we're seeing all sorts of escalation all over the place, um, they've managed not to have a big escalation between Hezbollah and Israel. And and there hasn't been the kind of huge wider war that everyone's still worried about. So I, I do think that is part of their assessment um, is is that, uh, you know, if the U.S. turns against Israel, that that could unleash more violence against Israel from other parties. I asked Hussein Ibish, is there, I mean, you see whispers of it in the Wall Street Journal and other places, have a bunch of ancillary and regional powers, especially ones that don't have a lot of love for Tehran, come together to put some sort of grand bargain on the table? And if they if they have, I mean, through Qatar or through Saudi Arabia or through someone else, I mean, in the wake of the Abrahamic Accord, Abraham Accords, um, don't you have to have a counterparty on the other side for a grand bargain? I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure that the Palestinians or the U.S. imagine that Netanyahu is long for his political life, and they don't know if they have a, a viable counterparty in Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank. So it, it's it's a massive kind of hinge, and if then. Well, I think you're you're exactly saying what the plan is, and the and the Saudi foreign minister at Davos last week said we would have normalization with Israel if they would agree to two states. And the U.S. kept saying that's what the Arab parties were telling them. And the foreign minister went out and and tried to help them by saying that. And then Netanyahu went out and rejected a Palestinian state. Now, what Biden says may not just be trying to paper over the differences. He says that there's wiggle room there. That there are ways you can have a uh, Israeli security control of of the perimeter, right, of the perimeters, and uh, and still have more Palestinian autonomy. And that there are some states, he said, that have UN membership, you know, have sovereignty, but 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 don't have their own militaries. So is there wiggle room there? Is is um... the other thing I will say? This is a is a more granular maybe than you wanted, but. Last week, there started to be Israeli media reports that in northern Gaza, which Israel thought they had finished with, they're sending thousands of reserves home. 
who started to come back to northern Gaza but Hamas because there's nobody else. And and the one thing is, um, you know, Netanyahu can reject a Palestinian state. He can criticize the U.S. vision, but he doesn't is not offering the Israeli defense forces a plan of who's going to hold the territory that they clear after they finish with it. And that's that's a problem that they're having already now. So I don't think that the United States. Anyhow, there, I think Israel has problems that it's created for itself, and and uh, they need solutions too, right? And I, I don't know which which nine one one they're going to call who 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 they plan to, you know, govern and administer that area. Um, does that I, make sense? It so does. They're rejecting a solution for that and so and i think part of this saudi israel normalization talk is about you know arab governments helping with that answering that that problem and the same question that i posed to hussein ibish what pray tell does iran want iran is i mean ultimately you're into self-preservation if you're the ayatollahs and the mullahs in tehran and maybe you want to provoke up to the edge and have uh, Hezbollah doing its thing, but only to a certain amount, not full-fledged warfare, because after all, you would be inviting a, a pretty catastrophic response from Israel and maybe the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you're right that Iran and the U.S. have, have traded messages that they, they don't want to have a full-on direct confrontation, but you're right there. Proxies on both sides are getting awfully close. Um um, they are trying to preserve themselves. I think they're, they feel like they're gaining some um, with, with the anti-Israel, anti-U.S. sentiment in the region. I think they think that probably wins them some hearts and minds in the Arab world and, and, and maybe even beyond that. Um, yeah. So, you know, their influence. I think they really don't really want to see a Saudi-Israel normalization deal. I think Hamas didn't want to see that. I think the Biden administration thinks that was one of the reasons for the Hamas attack was to disrupt that. And so to get that back on track and have the Saudis say they're still interested is quite interesting. Do you think about Erdogan a lot in Turkey the way I do? I, this is like if I'm imagining having a lunch or a beer with Laura Rosen. I'd be like, okay, this is so geostrategically vital. It's a bridge, not to sound cliche, between Europe and the Middle East. He talks to Iran. He talks to the United States. He talks to Israel. He, he talks, talks to Russia. He talks right. to Russia. Right. Uh, I mean, are there are there wild cards in this? The kind of people who benefited. You know, we're talking maybe seven years ago he overcame a coup attempt, but now is pretty entrenched. Uh, the economy has faced hyperinflation, but geostrategically, you could be doing a lot worse than kind of being a, a middle player like Turkey. Yeah, it's interesting. They were they've done a lot of interesting uh, hosting of back channel. Russia, Ukraine, prisoners swap type talks. And um, uh, you saw yesterday that the Turkish parliament, over which Erdogan has a lot of control, um, approved NATO membership for Sweden. So that's very interesting, right? Because that's something the US wants a whole lot. And so everyone's sort of waiting to see what Turkey gets for that. Um, I haven't seen them play as much on this Israel-Gaza, you know, be a, a mediator as much on, on that issue. The, the Iranian president was meeting with Erdogan today when we're speaking. Um, so, yeah, Erdogan's an interesting person. But I don't think he's as key as Qatar and Egypt have been in terms of mediating on the Israel-Gaza issue. Laura Rosen writes Diplomatic on Substack. Loved having you on. Veteran foreign policy journalist. You're always welcome to come back on the show. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Apple, Spotify, all the fine podcatchers. The link, 
please subscribe. It's all in one place is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow along on all social media at handle fulldradio. And a shout out to our listeners on NPR member station Radio IQ. Catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. 